Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Today's show is brought to you by the award-winning NordVPN. I've been using Nord for years now because it secures my internet traffic and keeps my data private, especially when traveling or on public Wi-Fi. NordVPN has servers in 60 countries, does not log your data, unlocks Netflix and other geographic restrictions on entertainment content, and has a 30-day money-back guarantee. To get the best deal on a subscription, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com slash NordVPN or use the promo code BT future. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Dwayne Brown. He's the founder and head of strategy at Take Some Risk. Dwayne, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Kevin. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show today. I, I think what we're going to talk about in, in a bit is actually really selfishly I'm fascinated about, and I'm sure uh, the listeners will be as well. But maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure, yeah. I mean, I grew up in Toronto, Canada, um, cool. but I live now in Montreal, Canada, and I've lived in four other cities between those two, um, so I've been around the world and back. Wow, very cool. So what did you take in university and why? I actually went to college first, okay. uh, so I applied for five different programs across three streams, so I applied for like business management and uh, business administration. Uh, and then I had an extra class uh, or program I could apply to. So on a whim, I just applied for public relations. Interesting. Um, and then I, I cut into the program and I did that for three years at uh, college. Uh, and then I got a job at a video game company. Uh, and then I went to university at nighttime in my second year at a, at a college. Um, and I did a mix of marketing management and business management. Um, and the rest of the history, so to speak, as they say. Very cool. So walk me through your career up until um, founding Take Some Risk. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely a windy road. Uh, I often tell friends, uh, if I knew now and I knew then, uh, <laughs> I probably would have went harder on the path I took because it was just kind of like, what's going to make me happy, which sounds a little bit flighty, but... Uh, after college, I did get a job at a video company. I had that job for about 13 months, and then I got fired uh, because the person who came my boss didn't like me, and I learned the value of, like, politics are everywhere, and you can't really escape it no matter how good you are at your job or how nice you are. Um, and so then I freelanced for about 18 months, uh, and then a person I met at my first job, um, his company was hiring, so he put my CV in, and I got a job there. And I worked at that ad agency doing a lot of like HR communications and brand, uh, branding and helping, you know, brands like, you know, H&M and Research and Motion stuff figure out how do we recruit more engineers or salespeople and things of that nature. Um, and that, yeah, it was an interesting job. It's not what I expected, but it was my first foray into advertising. Uh, and then that company went under uh, after we got bought uh, just because we weren't making as much money off of digital compared to 
what we were losing, you know, month and month for people who wanted to buy like, you know, radio spots and print ads and stuff like that. Sure. Um, and then I pretty much since then, I've pretty much worked for myself for the most part. Um, so I freelanced a lot in Toronto. Uh, then I went to go live in Australia for seven months and worked for a telecom down there. Um, I came back to Toronto and worked for myself again. Uh, and then I moved to England nine months later because I wasn't really happy. And it was kind of during the recession in 2012 a little bit still. And so I decided I'm just going to move to England for two years and find a job. And then I... I had a string of jobs working for ad agencies and for a startup, and that startup got bought, and then I came back home after 10 weeks in Asia, um, and then I did four years in Vancouver, so the first two years I take some risk were in Vancouver. Uh, my designer is still out there, uh, and she loves it, and she's from there, and I'm now based in Montreal, Canada. Very cool, man. So what exactly is Take Some Risk, and what made you actually decide to start it up? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I wasn't really happy at my job, uh, and I kind of believe we spend so many hours at work in general. You know, almost sometimes you spend more hours at work than you do seeing your significant other or, or sleeping, and I decided I'm just going to quit my job. Um, and then I started the company mostly because I realized I had lots of friends and people I network who were like, oh, we just hired this agency, this person, and they said they were going to run ads on Google or Facebook or YouTube or whoever it is, and it just wasn't working out. Um, and so I had friends, you know, give me the account or whatever it is. And, you know, I do what I do and turn things around. And I just realized there are probably other people out there who aren't at the stage in their company. They can afford to hire someone full time and they maybe want a slightly higher touch service and not go with a large agency where they just get shoved with someone who's got a year's experience. Um, let's see if I can string together enough clients to replace my income from my old job that I had. Cause I was making good money on my old job. I was just bored out of my mind and hated my job. Um, and so three years ago, I, I quit and uh, started the company and we'll have our start of our fourth year in January and I've not looked back really. Wow. Congrats, man. That, no, that's interesting because it's smart that you obviously kind of did it on the side, right? And, and built something out and tested the waters, right? Before you just kind of do dove in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily something I had planned. I just had uh, started by work from the UK. The founders reached out when they were on their second company. It was like, hey, Dwayne, do you want some work? We need some help. We just need you to do what you did last time and, and make us a, you know, a shit ton of money, so to speak. And so I'm like, sure, you know, I'll charge you some flat rate per month because it's a side thing I'm doing on the side. Um, and then another friend reached out. And so then I had two clients. And then I was just like, why don't we just see if we can make this work? I mean, worst case scenario, I can go and get a job. You know, I've had Shopify approach me four times in the last four years. You know, TELUS, which is a big telecom up, obviously up here in Canada. Right. Um, so there's jobs out there, and I can get a job with anyone. Why don't we just see if we can work for ourselves? Sure. So you quickly covered it, but what exactly do you guys do? Because it, it, I think to some, to a lot of people, it's kind of a weird black box. Like it sounds so simple, but it's actually quite complex. It is, yeah. I often tell friends, you know, people often think it's like a, a game of, of checkers. You know, checkers is really easy, but it's more of a game of chess. Uh, it's a lot more complicated than it looks. Um, and it looks easy because like any job that someone's done for years, they make it look easy because they've just done it for a very long time. Um, so there's kind of like three, you know, service offerings we have. Um, sometimes clients want to just run advertising in-house and they just want someone's, you know, outside opinion, you know, a second opinion, if you will. So we do a lot of strategy work for clients who just want to keep executional stuff in-house. But most clients come to us and say, 
you know, hey, Dwayne, can you and the team run ads, you know, on Google or on Facebook, um, you know, or Amazon or YouTube or Instagram? Um, and so we'll, you know, get access to their advertising accounts and figure out, you know, who's their customer, who's the target market, who are their competitors, you know, how do we want to talk about the service, where do we want to advertise? If they're an e-commerce company, you know, we'll do things like Google Shopping. Um, and so it's just figuring out, you know, which campaign and structure is going to work. And you can hire three different people and they can all work on your account, but they're not all going to necessarily have the same kind of success. Um, so it's definitely a job that looks really easy, but it only looks easy because, you know, I and other people have done it for years and years and we understand it really well. Because sometimes, you know, Google will say, hey, this is how something works, like a new piece of technology or a new beta product. But when you actually launch on the market, you know, the way it actually functions isn't the way that Google thinks it does. Um, and sometimes you've got to like realize at the end of the day, it, it's technology and, and in theory it should work one way, but it doesn't always work that way. Um, so yeah, we run ads for clients and the other part is, you know, a lot of clients have traffic on the website, but it doesn't convert. So helping clients figure out like why it's not converted and why it is converted and how do we get more traffic to convert? Most people don't have a traffic problem if they've been like in business for a few years, they've got like a conversion problem where people just not convert on the website because, you know, your checkout's too complicated or your copy doesn't make sense or people, you know, can't figure out how to navigate your website. Like it's intuitive to you because you built your website, but to the average person, your website may actually be really complicated. So maybe let's start with running ads on the, on the different services. How do you decide what platforms to run ads on? Because obviously different ones convert and have different markets, but how do you decide that? Yeah, I mean, that's a combination of, you know, the client's budget. You know, some clients come to us and say, we've got 100000 to spend or half a million dollars. And other clients come to us and say, we've got like $10,000 a month to spend. Um, and what most brands get wrong is they try to advertise on all advertising platforms at the same time, and they spread their budget too thin, especially if they have a smaller end of that budget. Um, so what we usually think about, if you're in e-commerce, we'll usually start with Google first because it's easier to get up and running. It's easier and faster to get sales and have people buy on your website with, you know, a combination of, you know, Google search ads and Google shopping ads. Um, and especially if your target market's going to be on Google, you know, unless your target market maybe is a little bit older and potentially might be on like Microsoft, we might start there. Um, and then if you're not e-commerce, it just depends on, on what you're selling. You know, sometimes it makes sense to be on Facebook, but lots of clients usually just pick Facebook or Instagram because, you know, it's very trendy, it's very popular right now. You know, I imagine next year we'll see lots of people say, hey, we want to be on, you know, Snapchat or we want to be on TikTok and things of that nature. And like being where it's really shiny or popular, it's in the news a lot, is not always the best place to be for your business because you're trying to build a business, you're not trying to just be on the hot, trendy platform that everyone talks about just because it's in the news. Sure. Well, and I'm assuming because you guys work with a lot of e-commerce stuff that you potentially want to run ads on Instagram, for example, and then you maybe want to direct them to your Shopify store or your Squarespace store or your Amazon store or, or all of those. Or, or what are your thoughts kind of around that? Yeah, we definitely would say direct traffic to your own store. You know, the challenge with Amazon still is they don't give you all the customer data. So you can drive uh, traffic and you can see their sales, but you don't get the data. Uh, we'd never take on a client that has Squarespace store or Webly store, or one of those other platforms like that, okay. because they're not really built for e-commerce. Oh, um, interesting. Why do you say that? Just out of curiosity. Sorry to cut you off. No, no, it's okay. It's, it's, 
if you look at the if you look at the platform, it's built to build a website, right? Now, right? A website that's one or two pages is very different than like an e-commerce site. Like those are just sure. two different outcomes. Um, you know, of eighty percent of our clients are e-commerce. Of that eighty percent, ninety percent are on Shopify, and that's just because I think Shopify is really popular and trendy right now. But we, you know, have clients on Magento or clients on WooCommerce, which are the other two big, you know, e-commerce platforms. Um, so we definitely say direct people to their own sites the best case. If for some reason you built a business out on Amazon, then yeah, we could say let's run a test and direct you know Facebook traffic or Google traffic to your store and see if that shows an increase in traffic. But again, it's not always the best idea to go that route because then you don't have any data on like who those people are and how you can market to them later. Interesting. So how do you decide what types of content and ads to actually run on the different platforms? Because Obviously, sure, you might cherry pick a couple couple platforms, but how do you actually come up with the content? Because it should be quite a bit different depending on the platform. Is is that correct, or what are your thoughts around that? No, that that hundred percent is correct. So, if you're running something on Google Shopping, um, and Facebook has a similar style ad called a Dynamic Product Ad, which is like Google Shopping, um, they would just pull the data from your Shopify store. So they'd pull like the title of your product, the images. Um, the link to your store, and so you could run those as ads. But if you're not doing, you know, a shopping style ad on Google or on Facebook, you'd want to write, you know, a text ad that is on brand that talks about, you know, your USP or what makes you different. Um, if you're talking about making images ads for, you know, Instagram or Facebook, you know, sometimes we'll figure out, you know, who your competitors are, what do their ads look like, you know, how do we make our ads stand out? The challenge online sometimes is everyone just copies you know, quote unquote, the leader in the space. And so all the ads look alike. And if all the ads look alike, you don't really stand out as a brand. So we try to figure out, you know, what's going to make you unique. What do we think people care about? You know, Facebook has what they call the Facebook ad library tool. And so not every brand is on there, but you can go in there and look up different brands, Facebook pages to see what ads they're currently running and then what channels, whether it's, you know, Facebook itself or Instagram, which Facebook owns, or, you know, eventually next year I'm assuming we'll have uh, WhatsApp as well. Um, so part of it's just figuring out, you know, who your customer is and what's already out there and what do we think is, is going to convert. Um, you know, there's people who say they can predict, you know, what ad's going to convert better, but no one really can because if that person could, they'd probably be a millionaire and not be running ads. <laughs> Interesting. Sure. Yeah. Right. Like, because I, I, the one thing I, I think a lot of people still don't realize is Facebook owns Instagram and WhatsApp, right? So by default, I think a lot of people go to that platform because they could basically run ads on, on Facebook and Instagram, but they're potentially really quite different. Do you agree with that? Or, or what are your thoughts around that? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's lots of people who still don't realize, uh, yeah, that Facebook owns Instagram and owns uh, just lots of other things beyond those technology. Um, and I say they, they are a bit different. I mean, you definitely still have an older audience on Facebook because, you know, they right. took longer to get there. Um, but now all the, you know, Gen Z, Gen X, Gen Y have left and gone to Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok. Um I think we're seeing more older people. I'm going to say older people, not that much older. Let's say people in their, you know, late 40s into the 50s, 60s start to go on Instagram because, you know, their grandkids are there or what have you. Um, We definitely see, I think if we're talking an older demographic for our clients, we see them convert better on Facebook versus Instagram. Instagram is great if you're going after a younger demographic, let's say under under 30, under 35. Um, 
But it's not to say that you couldn't have an older demographic convert on on Instagram if you're going after, you know, maybe parents potentially because you're selling some sort of like kids product or something geared towards parents that might do really well on Instagram because there's definitely like a a parent community on Instagram where they, you know, like each other's posts and comments and stuff like that. Um, so a lot of times it's just, you know, we have an idea, we have a hypothesis, we'll test out, you know, different copy and different ads and see what works. And sometimes things don't work out and we tell clients, well, if it doesn't work, we'll pause it and, and shift our budget or time to, you know, a different channel. Interesting. No, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense, right? And I find some of the tools to do some of this stuff, it, it's kind of a rabbit hole, right? Like you can get lost in there for, for a while trying to figure some of this stuff out. They can get really complex really fast. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah, no, that's totally fair to say. Um, I mean, Google just did an update last year where they redid the whole UI. And so it's completely different than if you had looked at the platform, you know, two years ago. Sure. Um, Microsoft is in the process of saying they're going to re-update their platform, which again, has not been updated in like a decade. Um, so that UI is going to look very different. And it's definitely a rabbit hole. There's lots of like tabs you can go down and buttons you can click. And, you know, sometimes you can only go one way in an account to get somewhere. Sometimes you can go two different ways. Um, so there is definitely tons of information and at the same time, especially Google, but, you know, Microsoft and Facebook are doing this as well. They're trying to, you know, put a lot more automation in where it's like, oh, just set up the campaign and we'll have our machine learning or AI technology just run the campaigns for you. And in theory, that is a great idea. In practice, that does not always work out. Yeah, well, you, you might want to try it a little bit, but I, I still think the human element of some of that stuff has to be better in in a lot of cases, right? And it sounds like you you found that. Yeah, it's it's definitely hit or miss with clients. Like some clients that works great with, and other clients it, it doesn't. Um, you definitely need more data than less. You know, oh, like if okay. you're only getting yeah, like fifty conversions a month or fifty sales a month, it may not be as good as someone who might be getting like a hundred a month or two hundred a month. Um, but we definitely try with every client, even within automation, there, there are, you know, five or six different bid strategies you can pick. And a bid strategy is like how you want to bid for something. Um, and even within that, there are options of, of how are you going to do that bid? And so it's definitely tons of options and it definitely works when it works, but when it doesn't, uh, it's a dog's breakfast and it doesn't work out at all. Interesting. So how are you guys leveraging platforms like YouTube and LinkedIn to actually convert for your e-commerce clients and your non-e-commerce clients? Yeah, that's actually an interesting question. So we just talked with, you know, a big D2C brand, which is like direct con to consumer brand. So they sell stuff on their own website um, in San Francisco and we're working with them. And so we'll get YouTube as a channel to do remarketing or retargeting on, which basically means like someone's come to your website you know, they looked around, maybe they looked at a product page, they left, and when they go on YouTube, you can show them an ad. Okay. Um, you know, and, and for those who maybe don't know, like YouTube is owned by Google. They've owned it for, I don't know, 12, 13, maybe 15 years now. Yeah, it's, been um, it's been a long time. And effectively, it's the world's second largest English search engine. Um, I think technically the second, yeah, the second largest English search engine, but I think the second largest search engine in the world, I think, would be like Yandex, which is in Russia, um, or it could be the one in China. I never remember which one is second, but but the point is, we will get YouTube as a, as a channel for remarketing, so that if someone's been to your website, you can show them, you know, a text ad or a video ad, um, 
because people spend a lot of time on YouTube. It's a great place for entertainment. It's a great place for education. You know, people go there looking how to do something, you know, how to get a stuck light bulb that's in your light socket or how to, you know, get white stains out of your carpenter clothes or how to do acts. And so if you want to learn how to do something educational-wise, uh, it's a great place to go. And you can target people who are looking for, you know, things that your competitors YouTube channel or the YouTube videos, you can target people can, based on their keywords and what they search for. So for us, YouTube is at most a remarketing because if you can't convince someone who's already been to your website to come back from YouTube ad and convert, you're probably not going to be able to use YouTube to do the other more advanced things that are not remarketing and are potentially going to spend more money. But on the flip side, yeah, on the flip side, if we look at like um, LinkedIn, uh, so there's the challenge, I think, with LinkedIn is it's owned by Microsoft now. So they bought it, you know, four years ago, three years ago for $26 billion. Yeah. Um, and so they've got what they call is like LinkedIn profile targeting. So if you want to target somebody who has a LinkedIn account and they're surfing like MSN.com or they're on Outlook or something like that, you can target them and add on that, you know, Microsoft network. Um, so we use that for a lot of clients because they'll want to target, you know, people in the B2B sector. Um, for other clients, it really kind of depends on what they want to do. You know, we sometimes worked with agencies who want to try to get, you know, potentially more leads and things of that nature for some of their clients. So we might run like an in-market or an in-mail um, sponsored ad on LinkedIn. I've seen more B2C ads on LinkedIn, but we've never run like a B2C campaign on LinkedIn. Um, so LinkedIn's a bit tricky because it, it's not as much traffic. The cost per each click is is a lot more money. Um, even if like the deal size you get on LinkedIn is really high, but not everyone's got the money to like sink in to test and figure out what's going to work on LinkedIn, which might take a bit more work than you know another platform if you haven't spent tons of time on LinkedIn to begin with. Interesting. So how long roughly does it take to actually start seeing uh, some conversions? Um, it's probably different per flat per platform, but. Is it usually take a few days? Is it usually weeks? Is it kind of months? Or, or walk us through that. Yeah, it, it definitely varies per platform. We usually say, you know, if you're on Google or you're on Microsoft, um, you know, it could be a few days if you're e-commerce, if you're selling an item where people don't need to do lots of research, they just want to buy because it's an impulse item. Right. You know, it could take seven, you know, to 14 days if it's an item they need to research or they're going to need to talk to their partner before they purchase it. Um, you know, on Facebook, it could be the same amount of time. It could be a little bit longer because the challenge with Facebook is you just got like all these different targeting options. And if you pick the wrong one, even if your ad is great and your ad copy is great, you're just not going to convert. And so it definitely could take, you know, a month on Facebook sometimes to get that first sale because you've just spent so much time figuring out who your audience is, you know, what ads are actually going to work for that audience. Because if you've got the right ads with the wrong audience, you're just never going to get them to convert. Um, and then from there, you just kind of have to scale up what's going to work, what's not going to work. Um, and most clients are okay with that because most clients come to us, they're not starting from, you know, scratch. If they are starting from scratch, I just warn them that, you know, it could take a couple of weeks and we just have to sort of test and figure out what we're, what we're going to do um, and what's going to work. Interesting. Today's show is brought to you by FreshBooks, an all-in-one small business invoicing and accounting solution. I've been using FreshBooks for over a decade to send estimates for time and expense tracking, sending invoices, and collecting payments online. Then at tax time, I just generate a report that can be sent off to an accountant. 
To get a free trial of FreshBooks, please go to buildingthefutureshow.com slash FreshBooks. So how do you guys stay current on what's relevant and what you can and can't do on the platform? Because these platforms, from my experience, can change very often. Yeah, yeah. I often tell people Google has made more changes in the last 18 months than they probably have in the last decade, um, which depending on if you like change or not can be a really good thing or a really bad thing. You know, we read a lot. So, you know, there's tons of blogs you could read and just to keep up with, you know, high level what's going to go on. Um, depending on which client we, we have, we have account managers at different ad platforms. So we're always asking them, you know, do we miss anything? Is there anything coming out, you know, next quarter that just came out we need to know about? Is there like, you know, a beta product, something we can test um, that you're trying to test with different clients? So for example, you have a couple clients on betas with, you know, both Google and Facebook slash Instagram to try out stuff this holiday season. Um, and then I also speak at conferences. So I'm going to a conference in New York next week. Uh, I was going to speak at one session, but now I'm speaking at three different sessions. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's a little intense. So I've got to like juggle all my time because uh, <laughs> I have dinner plans as well. Um, so it's really just like reading the news sure. uh, and going to conferences and just talking with friends and stuff. There's a, there's a Twitter chat called PPC chat. So that's on Tuesdays at 12 Eastern standard time. Um, so that's a great way to sort of figure out what's going on in the industry and stay up to date. Cause everyone's like answering questions and we're talking back and forth and debating like based on our own experiences. Oh, I saw this work, you know, with this kind of client for this situation and people ask me, you know, why or why not? Um, but it definitely is hard to stay up on like what's going on and, I've kind of accepted I will never be able to keep up with everything on every platform because I would just never get any sleep. Fair. Yeah. Like it, I, I, yeah, I guess that was the point I'm trying to get across is sure. You can do some of this stuff yourself, but it, it gets so complicated so fast. And then just when you think you have one platform completely mastered, they make one change and it throws all that stuff out the window. That's been my experience when I've, dabbled in this kind of over my career <laughs> anyway yeah it's it's it changes really quickly like facebook is always changing and they don't always tell you when a change happens you just wake up one morning and there's something new in your account if it changes the look um to do this job you got to really like change and, and embrace it you know i think in marketing in general you've got to like change people who don't like change really shouldn't be in marketing because change is just one constant you're always going to have sure so you're doing a, a course. Do you want to talk about what is the course about and what made you actually decide to build a course? Yeah, I mean, it was something we thought about like as a company for a while. Um, and so we decided we want to do a course on Google Shopping. So Google Shopping is just, you know, one of the four or five different options of campaign types you can run in Google. You know, there's Google Search, which is like text ads. You've got Discovery Ads, which is a new product that Google just launched. You know, you also have display ads, which are what most people think of when they think of ads on the internet. They're just, you know, banner ads. Um, but Google Shopping has been around since, you know, earliest is like 2011. Um, it went by a, big, a different name back then. Um, but I realized, you know, not everyone has as strong of an understanding as Google Shopping as I, I would think they have. It's one of those, um, I want to say they call it the Peter Principle. It's where like things you think are really simple are actually really complicated, but you think they're simple because you're used to doing it that way, whereas other people would think what you're doing is actually complicated. Um, and 
And so I thought, okay, well, why don't I build a course just on Google Shopping? Because it's, you know, where most of our clients come from and want to help with. It's what I see people on Reddit asking questions a lot about a lot. There isn't really one out there. There's, you know, courses on other aspects of Google or, or other aspects of things happening on Facebook or other app platforms. Um, and a few people who've maybe built something in the past have built like an hour's course. And I think I can build a four or five hour course um, just based on our experience of working with both high-end brands and, you know, mid, mid-priced fast fashion type brands. Um, and I want to do something that was like interesting, different. Uh, I love education. I love speaking at conferences and I'm like, this is something I can do. It's like achievable. Um, there's lots of software out there these days to build courses. So I'm like, let's, you know, let's give it a try and market it next year and see what people think. Very cool. Yeah. And so you're, you're planning kind of releasing that first quarter of 2020. That is the goal. So goal is like early in January, um, which is a bit of an ambitious goal, but we're just like, let's set an, an aggressive goal and just work towards it. Cause a lot of, you know, the content we've written for, you know, conference decks or we've written on our blog. So it's like assembling all that together in one doc, figuring out what areas are missing, write all that stuff up. And then we just got to film it, which is the easiest part, but probably also the most complicated part. Cause I've just got to like, you know, take my time and make sure people can understand what's going on on the screen. Um, and then just upload it to the software that I choose to upload it for. No, makes, makes total sense. So you touched on it a little bit earlier in our conversation, but I, I want to dive a bit deeper into it. When you're working with uh, companies and their internet properties, whether it's their website and doing some A-B testing and stuff, how do you determine what parts of a site are not converting as well as they should be? Is it actually, well, you're just not getting enough people buying product or, or how do you determine what's working, what's not working? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Kevin. I mean, it's it's the same, but not the same for every client. Like most clients will have Google Analytics installed, which is right. you know a package that will let websites track what's going on on their website. Um, so a lot of times we'll go in there and we'll try to build like funnels and figure out you know when someone comes to the homepage, where do they go next? Or if someone goes to your checkout, you know what stage does they drop off on the checkout? Figure out like where the friction point is. You know, if you're e-commerce. Lots of people are going to drop off on the last step when you show them what the shipping cost is. If it's not for free, because people just want to know what the, the total cost is or what it's like to buy it online versus in a store. Um, so we do that to figure out what the problem is. Sometimes the problem is people don't, you know, make it past your homepage or they don't make it past your product description page. Um, and so once we know what the problem is, it's it's looking at everything from a tool called Hotjar, which lets you sort of heat map a page and figure out where people are clicking or record what's happening on a page. So you can figure out why people are not buying. Maybe they can't see the add to cart button if it's on a mobile device. You know, a client recently had a pop-up on their website and it was hard to click out of the pop-up so people couldn't buy on the mobile device because they couldn't get rid of the pop-up. Right. Um, and it's one of those cases where people don't always test their own website. You know, people yeah. just watch things and assume it's great. And I always tell clients, you know, every six months, just go in and act like you're a buyer and try to use your own website across different devices because you don't know what's been launched potentially in the last six months if you're a larger organization. And so just making sure that the experience is great well, is key to making sure you get more sales. Well, even trying on the other platforms that you aren't... Like if you're an iPhone user, try on an Android phone and vice versa, right? Because... Sure, usually they work pretty similar, but somebody that's been in this a long time, it's like they can also function a 180 from each other at, at the same time. Yeah, no, totally, totally. I'm an, I'm an Android guy, and so I always 
borrow friends' iPhones. I'm like, what does this site look like an iPhone? It's a different experience. Um, so yeah, testing across different hardware, different software. Um, even sometimes I'll just ask my friends who live in different parts of the world, sure. okay, can you go to this website and just like add to cart and see what that's like? Um, because even in other parts of the world, it can be very different. Um, and once we find that friction point, it's just figuring out like why people are not buying. We might run a survey and sit, ask questions on, is it the price point? Because price is sometimes an issue for people. Is it that you don't understand what the product is or how it works? Do you have more questions? Are you just doing research? Um, and then once we figure out, you know, what the, what the reason is for that, how do we, how do we get over that obstacle? Do we need to give someone 10% off on the first purchase? Do we need to put customer reviews higher up to tell people this is a great product? Um, so it's definitely like a longer process than, you know, running ads. Um, but sure. if you can figure out like why people aren't converting, you can turn that, you know, two, 3% conversion rate into a four or 5% conversion rate. And you've not, you know, spent more money on ads or you've not, you know, sent more traffic to the website. You've just made more people convert that you're already getting to begin with. Interesting. And then, so you're basically making recommendations on not like a full redesign, but design tweaks to make things work better and obviously depending on the platform that the client has sometimes that's a lot easier and, and sometimes it's a bit more challenging based on the platform like and you can tell me if i'm wrong my experience with magento is a lot harder than like the woocommerce or the shopify's of the world is that fair to say oh yeah no that's fair that's fair um, magento is great in a lot of ways but when you want to change something it's a bit of a pain in the ass to be honest yes um, you've got to hire a developer. Like a developer is a non-negotiable unless you know how to code. Um, but we have we have a couple clients on Magento, and it, it's okay when it works. It's just when it doesn't work, it's just a little bit frustrating. Um, so it's definitely harder. And we definitely aren't telling clients to redesign a whole website. It's, it's definitely usually tweaks here. It's usually someone didn't understand something, or the UX experience wasn't as great as it could be. Um, you know, we generally try to take on clients that already have like a, a really good, decent-looking website. Um, so that means that if we put the effort in to get to the website the way it is, we've seen lots of websites, like literally thousands of websites in the last couple of years, where we're just like, this website's probably not converting. We can't help them. I mean, we could help them, but to get them to where they need to be, so that we could help them even more, would just be a longer road than they want to invest or they want to pay us. Um, and so we just have to pass on that kind of work. Interesting. Yeah, I, I still think there's there's still that mindset in, in certain industries that, well, it, it just doesn't, they don't think it matters, right? And it, it's kind of like anything in life, it's, it's kind of your first impression, right? And it needs to be the best possible thing, especially when you're trying to get somebody to give you their credit card or some sort of account to give them payment and they have never heard of your brand before until a few minutes ago. Is that fair to say? That is 100% fair to say, yeah. Like like the auto industry, for example, like yeah. their websites are usually just atrocious. Like I just, I don't get how they get away with this so much. Sure. Yeah, interesting. So just in, in that vein, is there any advice that you would give to people that are in those spaces where their their sites are atrocious? Like, they basically just need to redesign, right? And actually pay a, a reasonable uh, agency or, or hire somebody to, to make it happen for them? Or, or what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think, I mean, definitely redesign is, is an option. I probably wouldn't go to a, an agency potentially that has only, you know, auto clients as an example, you know, because if every website they design looks the same and it doesn't look that great, 
you're not going to get a website that looks that great. Maybe it makes sense to go to a website where they focus on e-commerce or they're focused on high-end brands. They're focused on just something where your website is going to stand out as an auto website because all the auto websites really just look like they were built 10 years ago sure. and their function is not that great. Um, and I think it's important for clients to, you know, maybe talk with one or two past clients of the agency or find out what the reviews are online of that agency and stuff like that. There's lots of agencies out there, you know, lots are great, but there's also those who will take all your money and provide you with a service that's not as delightful as you would like. Um, So don't just go with the first agency that pitches you or don't go with the cheapest agency. You know, you get what you pay for in marketing and web design, like in any other industry, you wouldn't go with the cheapest lawyer, the cheapest doctor if you're either getting sued or you're sick. So this is kind of the same scenario. Don't go with the cheapest one um, because there's a reason they're probably that cheap if if it's a big gap between them and, and the other two options. Sure. The other thing that I want your thoughts on is it still seems to me that uh, just having a mobile optimized site to some people, they just still seem to not care. And and in my opinion, it's almost everything. Like your site needs to work on all the screens nowadays. Like people are, are browsing the internet, sure, on their phone, their tablets, their desktops. Sometimes it's TV, sometimes it's other screen sizes from, you know, a phone all the way up to a TV, sometimes larger than that, right? Like, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I know 100%. I mean, we went on a client's account the other day, and I think 80 or 90% of their traffic on Google was just on on mobile. Mm-hmm. You know, there was so little traffic on, you know, computers or tablets or, you know, Google now, some accounts you can see, like, traffic for TV screens as well. Right. Um, so you definitely want to be able to have it work on, you know, at least a computer, a tablet, and, you know, a mobile device, both Android, you know, let's say a Google Pixel phone and, like, the iPhone. Um, and even though people won't, you know, all convert or majority won't convert on, like, you know, a mobile device, you just don't want to be able to function. People can do their research and stuff um, because people spend so much time on their phone that having that experience be just a little bit better than the other experiences that might get going to your competitors is really important with the example I gave earlier of the brand in San Fran that has a mobile pop-up that blocks people from closing it on a mobile device. That seems like a small thing, but no one figured it out because no one decided to check their website and what it looks like on a mobile device. And they're in Shopify, so it's not like it, it was a you know, Magento platform or some other platform. It just no one decided to check what this pop-up was like on a mobile device. Interesting. No, I, you're right. A lot of people don't check their own site or they don't actually use their site like a customer. They just, they just use it like it's their own. Right. And if you don't think of it like how a customer would use it, you could potentially miss a bunch of simple things that you could easily fix in in minutes instead of, you know, figuring out a month or two later, why are, why are our sales down this month or, you know, and then you finally realize, oh, it's been this pop-up. We were trying to promote something. But if people can't actually buy and convert, then they're just gone, right? And they'll go buy it from your competitor. Yeah, they'll buy from competitor. They'll buy from Amazon. Like we had a client just launch a new website. Not really a website, but it's more of an update refreshed yesterday. And we're like, well, we'll poke around today and see if there's anything that we, you know, don't like or looks weird and stuff like that. Because, you know, we're three weeks away from Black Friday. We don't have time to, like make tons of changes, but if there's small things we can fix, let's fix them now so people have the best experience over the next, you know, six, seven weeks before the year's done. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And and the, the other thing, too, that I find interesting about that is, like, the A-B testing side of things, 
what does that mean and, and how do you guys leverage that with your clients? Yeah, so A-B testing in the simplest form is, you know, you go to a website and you get one experience, but if your partner goes to that same website on their phone, they might get a different experience. So the, the website's testing two different, you know, it could be two different pictures, it could be two different pieces of copy, because they're trying to figure out, you know, which one's going to convert more people. So that's like an A-B test, because you're testing A against B. Um, and for a lot of our clients, you know, we'll look at something like Google Optimize, uh, mostly because Google Optimize uh, it's free up to a certain point. It integrates with Google Analytics really well and other Google products. Um, it's really easy to use. It even clients can use it. Um, and then, you know, once we've maybe maxed out what Google Optimize can do, then it maybe makes sense to look at a paid program. But you've got, you know, a year or two of using Google Optimize and understanding, you know, how we're going to test, you know, what we're going to test, what's our processes. Because a lot of times I think we find with clients there's not been – you know, a process put in place or a method to how they do things. People are just kind of like flying by the seat of their pants sometimes. And so we try to work hard with clients to put in a process so that things are just done in a certain way so we can like move faster when we need to. Interesting. No, it makes total sense, right? And then obviously you pick the one that converts better or whatever, right? But and unless you trial and error these things, nobody really knows. And at the end of the day, as a designer myself, sometimes it pains you if... I don't know, maybe this is a bad example, but like if you have a conversion button to buy a product that's green and an orange one that you're A-B testing and you prefer the green one over the orange one, but the orange one converts better, obviously you're going to pick the orange one, right? And it's it's kind of irrelevant what potentially looks better in, in some cases. And I know that like will pain some people listening or, or even on, on the team. But at the end of the day, if that's what paying your bills, well, obviously you're going to use the one that converts better. And, and how do you kind of communicate some of those findings to a team, right? Because in a lot of cases, you probably get people that are a little bit defensive sometimes. Oh, yeah, I know that's all the time. People, you know, people think in, in any creative industry, and, and design is included in there, when they've made something and they're really proud of it, it's like the people who built their own website, they can't see the ugliness that's in what they've designed. Sure. Um, you know, like I, when I lived in the UK, uh, I came into work one day at a startup I was working at, and one of the developers and one of the co-founders redid the website, but didn't tell anyone. And we launched this website in the middle of the night, yeah. um, and our conversions tanked by 60%. Uh, and I spent the next few weeks just fighting everyone, like, this is not a conversion issue. This is a people hate the website, and you need to revert it back. Um, but they didn't want to revert it back because they spent months developing it, but didn't tell anyone else in the company they were development, developing it. So... What something looks like matters a lot. Um, and it comes down to just the data, like in that situation and in now, I'm just like, this is what the data says. It's not what I think. It's not my personal opinion. You know, if you want to be in business, you either give customers what they want or you're going to be out of business in a year or six months or whatever the case may be. So I try to back it by like research and data and customer's opinion because my job at the end of the day when it comes to doing CRO stuff and testing stuff is, is try to champion to make the best experience possible for customers. You know, sure. I don't really care whether it's the picture of the old dude or the young woman or the family or the single person or the dad you know the dog or the cat i just care that like it converts and people have a great experience yeah it's funny because i've always used the this is a simple example it's like if if you build something for nurses for example and you're not a nurse and you hate it well then you could argue it's successful like you're not the target market so you it doesn't matter if you hate it if nurses like it and it converts for them, then we're going to go with the the option that the nurses like and use. And if I'm the CEO and I don't like it, well, 
but if it's converting, I I need to think about it from from that perspective and, and not try to just like we need to change it. But I find like a lot of owners or or, or uh, maybe upper management get these things changed when it ends up ruining them. Right? I, I've seen it happen a bunch of times. Oh yeah, that happens a lot. People, you know, the highest paid person's opinion in the room, or whatever it's called, hippo is is you know their opinion is important, but they're not the customer. They're not buying it. Why should we care what they think? Other than the fact they may be like a VP or CEO, and even those people I just tell them this is what the data says. If you want to override me, that's great. But if your sales tank, it's not my fault at that point. Um, you know, I often believe you can you can bring that horse to the water, but you can't make them drink. And some people who you know make lots of money just really think highly of themselves and their opinion when it's like it doesn't matter if you like it or not it just matters that the customers like it because they pay your salary my salary and everyone else in the room's salary yeah interesting so you've been working as a digital nomad what does that mean and and what made you decide to do that yeah i think it has a different meanings for different people sure. um, i think in a nutshell maybe a digital nomad is like you work Remotely, you know, some would say all year, some say part of the year. Um, I would say I'm a nomad maybe, you know, a quarter to half the year, just depending on how much I'm on the road, speaking at conferences or going to see clients and things of that nature. Um, You know, friends sometimes joke, like, am I in Montreal or what city am I in currently because I'm traveling a lot and I'm in a plane (laughs) somewhere. Uh, And for me, it's just like I work wherever I am. You know, I might be in Australia next year, so that means – I'm one day ahead and I'm working from an Australian hotel or a hostel wherever I'm staying or an Airbnb. Um, and so being a Mac means you're maybe not tied to a location throughout the year. You're just working from, you know, hotels or trains or planes or airports um, and just trying to get work done and live your best life possible, if that makes sense. No, for sure. Well, I, I think that's the thing that I, I find so fascinating about the modern workday. It's, it's like, especially creative businesses. It's, it's like, you need to be here nine to five, Monday to Friday. It's like, that's absolutely ridiculous considering nobody can be creative just like eight, a certain eight hours of every day. Right. And I I think more and more companies are starting to recognize that and letting people work remotely or from another part of the world or, or, or wherever, because it's like, if, if you get better work done traveling or, I don't know, sitting by the ocean or being in another country because you have friends and family there for part of the year. Like, why wouldn't you want somebody to be the most productive, right? And as long as they're delivering, really, who cares where they are, right? And and so I think just covering that and, and obviously you've been wildly successful with this stuff. So just having somebody like yourself talk about this, I, th- I think it makes a lot of sense. But what advice do you give to people looking to do this and companies that are maybe looking to allow their employees some, some more of this flexibility. Yeah. We were actually talking about this on Slack the other day in a group of men. And so I think like if you've never worked remotely, it's actually a lot harder than I think sometimes people think it is because totally. you're, you're away from the office and the team. And so being really good at, you know, managing your own time and self-directing your own time um, and being, you know, able to advocate for, for yourself and communicate through, you know, Slack or email um, is really important because you're not in front of people to talk and communicate with them. Um, and just being able to just, yeah, really manage your time, I think, is the biggest thing. Um, some people don't realize how much they value 
people around them on the team. You know, they may not like the office, but maybe they like the people around them. And so going remote, you don't have that anymore. And so it can be a shock to some people's systems. Um, you know, I would say if you work at a company, see if they let you work from home, you know, one or two days a week and test it out that way before you go like 100% in and, and work remotely halfway around the world because then you're isolated from everyone on the team. I think, you know, on the flip side, if you're a company, um, you know, test drive it, you know, similar situation, give someone one or two days a week working from home or, you know, let's say God forbid something happens to one of your team members and they've got to move across the country to take care of, you know, their parents or their partner got a really great job, test run it. I mean, let them go work in the other city. The worst case scenario, you just find out it doesn't work and you gave it a shot, but not to try it because people want butts and seats. It's just a weird thing. Like an office is great, all things being equal, but it shouldn't be everything to an organization because you don't want the best people who want to live in the city you have your office in. You want the best people in the world who can do whatever the job is you need hired for. No, I, I 100% agree. But we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and uh, take some risk? Totally. So yeah, our website is just takesomerisk.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter, so it's just Dwayne Brown on Twitter. I probably spend more time on Twitter than I really should. <laughs> um, so most people probably just go to my Twitter feed to find out about me, or they just go to take some risk and see where I'm going to speak next or what I'm up to. Um, and yeah, we just love working with like e-commerce brands and tech and SaaS brands and just help them figure out how do they do what they're doing, but just do it better. You know, we bring that sort of outside perspective um, because working inside a company, you sometimes get tunnel vision. It's good to have outside perspective on how to just make your website and marketing a lot better. Perfect, man. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of the, your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Cool. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it for having me. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.